You're listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the Internet to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web shapes popular opinion, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com. Senior Advisor of External Relations at the World Bank, Edie Wilson, goes on the record online. You know, no matter how brilliant you are and how wonderful the program is that you're putting together at the World Bank or in a ministry, if you don't also have a persuasive program to tell people why it's going to work and to listen to them as you're in the process of implementing it, it's probably going to crash and burn. And thank you for downloading this episode of On the Record Online, recorded at the PRSA International Conference 2007 in Philadelphia. This is the podcast that brings you the story behind the story. We do in-depth one-on-one interviews with journalists from the mainstream media, as well as, from time to time, discussions with bloggers and podcasters and newsmakers about how technology is changing and threatening to disrupt the mainstream media business as we know it. My name's Eric Schwartzman. I'm the managing director of a boutique PR firm in Los Angeles called Schwartzman & Associates. Uh, We're on the web at schwartzmanpr.com, and we specialize in media, entertainment, technology, uh, and professional services. I am also the founder and chairman of iPressroom Corporation. Um, If you've never heard of uh, us, we help organizations including Target, Trend Micro and UCLA extend the reach and effectiveness of their marketing and PR campaigns using the latest online new media tools and services integrated into one powerful dashboard. Today we have a one-on-one interview with Edie Wilson. She is Senior Advisor on Corporate Communications in the External Relations Office of the World Bank, where she has worked since 1998. Uh, Just a footnote here. Uh, This is not a political podcast, so if you're tuning in for a political conversation, you may be uh, uh, sorely disappointed. This is a podcast about the business of communication and about how technology is changing the way organizations communicate and the way people consume media and information. So we don't talk politics here. That's why uh, you won't hear that in this upcoming interview. Uh, But you will hear quite a bit about the challenges uh, that Ms. Wilson uh, has been through at the World Bank and and, uh, what she's learned as a communicator uh, through the controversy. Um, The entire interview lasts just under 20 minutes, and you can hear it entirely unedited after this. Don't be left behind. Get the latest online PR tools and services from iPressroom. Powerful, easy to use, available on demand. Extend your sphere of influence online with iPressroom, tools for online media centers, virtual private press rooms, RSS news feeds, podcasts, and more at www.ipressroom.com. iPressroom, always on, even when you're off. Edie Wilson, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. It's really nice to be here this morning, Eric. So now I want you to set the stage for us, for those of our listeners who aren't politicos, Why is the World Bank seen as a controversial organization by some? We're only controversial because we're front line on the emerging issues of the day in terms of global development. We're always trying to make a difference. 
uh, we're frequently trying to figure out how governments can change. Change never comes easily, but one of the things we're proudest of is that the poverty levels uh, that we in the countries where we have worked have begun to go down in our lifetimes, and that's an accomplishment in which we've played a part. So now, how did you come to the position that you're in now? I did a lot of things. Uh, It's interesting to be here at this uh, Public Relations Society um, conference because I came up, uh, first I was a young activist. I had my own uh, non-governmental organization. I worked on food and hunger issues. And when I was doing that, I was always trying to figure out what the message was and how did you communicate to people and how did you persuade them and how did you organize them to take action. And as I was doing that, I became more and more involved in development issues and worked in a variety of international organizations then. Um, And then I started working actually uh, with businesses. I went to work for Burson Marsteller for 10 years, uh, five years in New York, five years in Washington. And one of the reasons I did that was that I learned slowly that the power of markets was really unavoidable. And I began, I didn't come from a business background originally, though I grew up in a family where business was um, a topic. And I gradually began to see that if you really want to lift billions of people out of poverty, you have to use the power of markets. And so I became much more interested in the role of the private sector and how you brought economic growth to countries. And eventually that led me to actually working uh, with a lot of different companies, uh, uh, both on Wall Street and and technology companies. And I learned so much uh, at Burson Marsteller. I I worked for Harold Burson uh, on several He's actually been uh, um, a guest on this show, so listeners can download that episode as well. I hope so, because, um, and I hope that they'll take a look at Harold's blogs that he's started to do the last couple of years on the Burson Marsteller website, because I think it's wonderful that we sort of uh, have been able to learn from him. Uh, and eventually I went into politics. Uh, I was a chief of staff to a U.S. senator, and I have done a bunch of political campaigns. And one of the great things for me is to be back in, in Philadelphia today. So I've done two senatorial campaigns and one presidential campaign in, uh, here. And uh, walking over this morning, I could just, I mean, it just, the fall it, for me is, uh, in an election time, is, always feels a little bit like I should be in Philadelphia. As a communicator... I would think you your job is is a difficult job. Be, I don't. I'm not that. Uh, I, I don't follow um, World Bank politics closely. I actually had to do a lot of research just for this interview here. Yeah. But um, often, I, I don't even read the story. But I look in the newspaper and I see people protesting at a World Bank meeting. Why? Why are they protesting? What are they protesting? Well, we just finished our annual meetings of the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund this weekend, where the representatives of 182 countries who are the owners, the shareholders in these two organizations come together um, to make decisions and uh, to be heard. And actually, we had, I mean, next to no demonstrations this time. And we have nothing against demonstrations. I've, I've, uh, we've seen... Um, some, some very powerful ones uh, in the last 10 years. But I don't sense that there's that much action going on in terms of uh, what you're describing anymore. What there is is a really 
intense dialogue going on inside the organizations about talking with civil society, talking with the private sector, talking with uh, between governments about how we're going to meet the Millennium Development Goals, which are uh, a program that all the countries of the world committed to in the year 2000 under the um, sponsorship of the Secretary General, and which describe essentially uh, a game plan for reducing poverty in a measurable way in some of the poorest countries of the world. And, um, and we have an enormous involvement these days with civil society, all sorts of organizations, organizations we didn't used to talk to before, who didn't used to talk to us before, uh, at all sorts of levels, not just in Europe, but uh, at the local level in Indonesia, in Brazil, in Central America. And uh, we learn a lot from them. One of the things that I work on these days at the World Bank is helping to run what you might call um, a big listening uh, effort, which we call consultations. And that's where if we have a program or a policy that we want to work on, we did this recently with our governance and anti-corruption policy, we take it out before it's final and we go essentially around the world and we use the Internet. The Internet has been, it's one of the things I want to talk about is how, you know, if you're a world let me finish that thought. What we do is we go and we say, does anyone else want to tell us something that we, uh, about this? And for that particular policy, which was so important on how you can improve how governments function and how you can reduce corruption, we had comments and very formal meetings in 47 countries with 3,200 people. And then we took all of those comments back, and I'm talking from you know, whether it was parliamentarians and civil society and the private sector and the media, uh, all sorts of, of people participated all over the world. And then we took all that feedback and we both summarized it and we presented it to our board of executive directors. And they said, before we, you know, before we finalize this, we really want to know what did they say and what have you done about what they said? Uh, and I think we're about to do that in a broader way also in ter- in a... We have a new president right now, Robert Zellick, who came in in um, July 1st, and he has set out some very interesting new directions for us, and he's been very clear that he wants to make sure that we go out and do a lot of listening uh, and be a very much more open, accountable, and transparent place in the future, which is neat. Putting aside the challenges of the bank, whatever they may be, yeah. what are your greatest challenges as a communicator? Oh, one of my greatest uh, challenges as a communicator is to persuade economists uh, that communications is important to them. And I would call that a battle that is about half won. Um, we have one of the reasons that I work at the World Bank is because I believe in the power of economics to transform people's lives. Many of the economists that we have there are, are, I mean, they're some of the very best in the world and some of the most committed and they're all my best friends. About half of them understand that what I do and what my colleagues do is essential to their success. And the other half don't. And so one of my biggest challenges is to continue to persuade and to demonstrate that if you don't get governments and the World Bank to talk about why they think a particular policy or program or economic reform is necessary, it's not going to work. And people are going to reject it. And we've seen examples of that 
in so many countries it's painful to talk about it. So that, you know, no matter how brilliant you are and how wonderful the program is that you're putting together at the World Bank or in a ministry, if you don't also have a persuasive program to tell people why it's going to work and to listen to them as you're in the process of implementing it, it's probably going to crash and burn. And so one of my biggest challenges as a communicator, uh, but it's also the reason I work there, is because we're trying to make sure that communication can help development work much better. Uh, Edie, you were senior advisor at the World Bank during the Wolfowitz controversy and his resignation. What lesson did you take away from that experience as a communicator that other communicators might be able to apply uh, at their, in their jobs and, and with, to their challenges? Well, what I took away from it is that we live in a, just an extraordinarily different world and that even very traditional hierarchical organizations when, you know, I, in an international organization that deals, with go, that deals with governments, I mean, of course, we are a very, we have all sorts of protocols in some ways and, and um, we are traditional and somewhat hierarchical. And one of the things you saw this spring was that that all just doesn't matter anymore. And again, it's the power of the Internet. What you see is we had just put up, two months before this controversy burst out in April, we had just created comment boards underneath all of our intranet articles. So we only have about uh, 12,000 employees. We're not actually a very big organization in international terms. Uh, But we all of a sudden, and you could post anything you wanted, and you could do it anonymously because we were just, I mean, we were just trying to get people to start using it. I mean, we had no idea that this controversy was coming. And then all of a sudden, um, there was this exchange that started between our board and our staff association. It was being posted on the intranet. And all of a sudden, in six weeks, in an organization of 12,000 people, we had 400,000 page views. We had 5,000 comments of incredible candor posted. You had the board reading the staff's comments. You had the senior management reading the staff's comments. You had the staff reading the board's comments. It was a not. It, it was a world we'd never lived in before. I understand the same thing happened at CBS with IMUS, that there was a huge internal reaction to uh, inside of the organization that made it very difficult for management to consider keeping him, and indeed they didn't. And so I think one of the most interesting things that I learned as a communicator was we're living in a whole new world, and I call it, you know, coming soon to a theater near you, uh, and I think everybody needs to buckle their seatbelts and to take much more seriously the idea that the combination, uh, and of course, by the way, you know, our staff, our board, all of the media, they're all reading blogs outside, websites outside, they're getting information that isn't even vaguely controlled. Organiza- information was, was in small bits and big bits, you know, from documents to just little teeny, you know, I know this, you know that. And it just wasn't a, it, it, was, a, it was a fascinating thing to live through. Because I think this is the new world we live in, where social media now combines with with traditional media, 
and you know it's one of the reasons why um, the gentleman uh, lost his job. So um, in Friday's Wall Street Journal, Adam Lyric, who's a professor of economics at Carnegie Mellon University, wrote a, gu- a guest op-ed column. Right. Um, and he wrote, transparency and accountability are close at hand on the internet. For every 300 projects undertaken each year, there exists detailed reports in electronic form ready to be delivered for web-based publication. Um, unquote. Do you think it makes sense for the World Bank to leverage the Internet to increase transparency moving forward? Oh, absolutely. The Internet has been one of the best gifts. That, I mean, imagine our, we're, we're, our name is the World Bank. What do you think we think of the World Wide Web? We think the World Wide Web is the biggest gift we were ever given because it has lowered our costs of making information available in real time as we have been trying to reach more people. Because again, years years ago, the only audience that we were responsible for talking to, uh, you know, if you're talking 20, we're about 66 years old now, all right? So if you go 30 years back, we were expected to talk to governments. Right now, we want to talk to the world, but we really don't, you know, you can't spend millions of dollars doing it. And the internet has been the vehicle for that. I thought Adam Lyric's comments were interesting with regard to, to uh, increased transparency on projects. There are a lot of people who agree with him. Uh, I think it's probably the direction we're going in. Uh, I, more and more of our project information has been available, is available uh, on uh, national government websites and on our website. And I think it's an, an inevitable trend. Edie, you've been at the World Bank for 10 years. Over the course of those years, I've got to think there have been common misperceptions that you've been confronted with from the media that you've had to turn around. What have they been and how have they changed? Okay, well, the favorite misperception is that we're a bank. Please don't write and ask for money because we're not a bank. We're actually a development cooperative that provides funds to developing countries to help them uh, with their own development programs. Uh, so I'd say that is one of the... It, it's funny to us, but it just says maybe the name should have been different. All right, It's a great name, and we're very proud of it, and we have an incredible brand involved in it. But the funniest part is we are an international financial institution, but we're not a bank. All right, um, And what are some of the other things that... We have, I think, some of, one of the one of the hardest issues. I, I came to the bank having worked on trade issues and on globalization issues. They're not easy, uh, and I think that in many cases the national dialogue that we're having in the United States and sometimes in Europe about globalization and trade is 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 really that could need that could use a lot better communication from some of the people who are. Um, in charge of it, but the task for us is to explain how do you create a more sustainable, a more inclusive globalization, and what's the role of the private sector. I know a lot of your listeners, um, even in you know technology businesses and entertainment and in other businesses, I mean, they see this global world changing too. Uh, and we've been part of creating it. We want to see their energy devoted to developing countries, not just to rich country markets, and um, <clears throat> sorry, 
and and so our challenge is kind of how do you bring all these people together and make it easier for all of them. Today, countries can get loans and grants from a variety of private financial institutions. And fighting poverty, the World Bank's main mission, has proven to be difficult. What are the greatest challenges to the World Bank's relevancy moving forward? The fact that there are more private funds available and more private capital in the world is nothing less than wonderful. But it doesn't always get where it needs to go to the poorest people of the world. The access that very poor countries or very poor parts of slightly richer countries have to private capital is really minimal. And so our job is not to overlap with private capital, but our job is to work in the lowest income countries, in the low income country part of middle income countries. And I think there's a big confusion in the world right now uh, about what middle income means. It's true that Brazil, India, and China are middle income countries. It's true that their economies are doing much better. But to be a middle-income country in this world means to have a per capita income that is less than 5000 a year, that is less than 3000 a year in many cases. So if anybody thinks that's a lot of money for someone to live on in a year, to be what you know, I think there's a confusion between middle-income country, which is a term that we use, it's just an economic definition, and the idea that somehow countries like this have become middle class. The majority of the world's poor people still live in India and in China. And I'm talking about people on under a dollar a day and under two dollars a day. Uh, and so they're not getting the benefits of the private capital that you're talking about yet. And our job is to offer our assistance to help direct money in. Our money is actually a relatively sp- small part of this. We only have maybe total financial resources that we leverage in a year are $36 billion. And that's in you know, an internet, a global economy of about $36, no, $40 trillion these days. So we're, in one sense, we're a rather small player. But in the places where we go, we're very important because we bring knowledge and we bring an ability to help along with some money. Senior Advisor of External Relations at the World Bank, Edie Wilson, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the web to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web impacts corporate reputations, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com.